When Joseph was 17, he had a couple of dreams which he interpreted to mean that it was only a matter of time until his brothers would bow down to him. They did not appreciate this. In fact, they didn't appreciate their brother very much at all. And shortly thereafter, they took their opportunity of faking his death and selling him as a slave into Egypt. They went back to their father and told him that, unfortunately, Joseph had met an untimely death. Meanwhile, Joseph went down to Egypt and had a roller coaster experience there. But one thing was constant. We are told God was with him and gave him success. And to cut a long story short, eventually he arrives at the position of being second only to Pharaoh in the great land of Egypt at a time of critical importance in the Middle East. There were seven years of plenty before seven years of famine, and Joseph was the one who saw it coming, was able to manage the situation so well that he not only provided enough food for the whole of Egypt through seven years of famine, but also for the whole of the area of the Middle East. Where Joseph's brothers lived, they were in deep famine. And so they had to come down and literally bow down to him and beg for food. His prediction had come true. His brothers did bow down to him. He recognized them. They did not recognize him. He gives them some grain, but he he puts their silver back in their sacks, and then he sends somebody after them and accusing them of engaging in dishonest practice. This they denied vehemently, but he makes one of their brothers stay down there until they bring his young blood brother, his only true brother, down to see him, Benjamin by name. He puts pressure on them. Benjamin comes down with the other brothers, much against the will of Jacob, his father. And when Benjamin is there along with his brothers, the same thing happens. He puts the silver back in their sacks, tells them to leave, and in addition puts a very precious silver goblet in Benjamin's sack. Sends his steward after him and finds the silver there, of course, brings him back, and now the brothers are really scared. It looks on the surface as if Joseph is playing the game with which we're all familiar, the game that was enunciated perhaps best by Lee Iacocca of Chrysler fame. Lee Iacocca said, I teach my children, don't get mad, get even. That seems to be the way that very, very often people handle situations of this nature. It looks as if that is what Joseph is doing here. You guys stuck it to me. Okay, now you're going to get yours. Uh, There's a sense almost in which we applaud this kind of thing. Much of the Hollywood movie genre that is very popular at the present time is of people being put to the point where they get doors. And we clap enthusiastically as we see people getting blown away in response to the things that they have done. That is emphatically not what Joseph was doing. What Joseph was doing was recognizing the fact that the relationship between him and his brother was in the pits. Talk about a relationship in need of repair. He understands that relationships that are in need of repair usually have deep-rooted problems, and deep-rooted problems seldom yield to superficial solutions. I want you to remember that. Deep-rooted problems seldom yield 
to superficial solutions. And he is going to bring pressure to bear upon these brothers so that they might resolve these relationships that are in such a serious state of disrepair. One of the reasons that we're studying the life of Joseph is that he is spoken of so warmly and so positively in Scripture. He is spoken of as being a prince among his brothers. Even people who didn't understand his faith life said, can we find a man such as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Even people who were opposed to him began to recognize the qualities in this man. And when his old father was about to die, he blessed Joseph, and he summed up Joseph's career by saying, he is a fruitful vine. In other words, we're studying the life of Joseph to find out how our lives can be productive, how our lives can be positive, how our lives can bring glory to God and blessing to people wherever we go. One of the things that we're going to discover today in this particular section of the story is this, that if our lives are to be lived productively, we've got to come to terms with the fact that our lives have to be lived in the context of relationships. You cannot live productively if you're not living well relationally. You cannot live productively if you're not living well relationally. Why is that? for the very simple reason that we were created as relational beings. We are created by God, first of all, to have a relationship with Him. And on the basis of that relationship with Him, then to have healthy, fruitful relationships with other people. Now, it stands to reason, if that is what we're wired up for, we are required to live well relationally if we are to live productive lives. You remember right in the very beginning of the Bible, it says that when God created man, he looked at man and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. And he made him a partner. He made somebody with whom he could relate. This was clearly something right from the very beginning of creation. Human beings are created for relationships. The writer to the book of Ecclesiastes has a very succinct statement here. It says this, to are better than one. Everybody can remember that one. What is it really saying? It is saying we are created for relationships. It goes on to amplify why two are better than one. It says, for instance, if two are better than one, because two will have more reward for their labor. That doesn't mean to say that four hands will produce twice as much as two hands. What it means is that when two people come together in commonality, they will produce something that is greater than the sum of its parts. We know that this is true. Two are better than one, says the book of Ecclesiastes, because if one is cold, lying down alone, another person will come along and warm them. What he's really saying is this, that this is a cold, hard, cruel world. And we need the warmth of companionship, and we need the warmth of relationship to be able to bear much of what goes on in our world. Two are better than one, says the writer of Ecclesiastes, because if one gets into danger, there's much more probability of them being able to cope with the danger if there are two of them. One is more vulnerable than two. Two are better than one, says the writer of Ecclesiastes, for if one falls into a ditch when he's on his own and there's no one to help him, he will be in dire danger. Two are better than one. Lloyd John Ogilvie, Presbyterian minister, 
returned regularly to Scotland for a study leave. And on one occasion when he was there, he took a break in his study leave to go hiking up in the Scottish Highlands. And up there in the Scottish Highlands, absolutely on his own, he fell and broke his leg. There is nowhere quite so desolate as the Scottish Highlands. There's nowhere quite so desolate as breaking your leg on your own in the Scottish Highlands. He was in deep, deep trouble and thought he was going to die. If only there'd been somebody with him. We're made for relationships. Now, it stands to reason, therefore, that if we are created for relationships, but the relationships are not being handled wisely and well, there is no way in which we can be satisfied with the productivity of our lives. And so it's appropriate for us to ask the question, how do we repair broken relationships? I think we can learn something from this incident in Joseph's life. There are four things that I want you to notice concerning the repairing of broken relationships. The first one is this. We need to start out by evaluating relationships realistically. In other words, let's take a good hard look at what relationships are all about because if we don't understand what they're about, then it is highly unlikely we'll be evaluating them correctly. We evaluate relationships realistically when we accept the fact that there are at least three dimensions to relationships. Relationships are designed, first of all, to provide loving protection for people. We need to be protected against need. We need to be protected against danger. We need to be protected against evil. We are incredibly vulnerable people. People who insist on living in isolation very, very often will find that their fundamental needs are not met. And it can actually happen even in our culture. I read in the, in the newspaper or listened on the news to the fact that somewhere in Illinois, the mummified body of a man had been found alone in his apartment and he'd been dead for four years. Nobody knew him. Nobody cared for him. Nobody missed him. Nobody recognized that he was no longer on the face of this earth and his body was found in a mummified state. Isn't it incredible that somebody's fundamental needs were never met because he was living in isolation? We need to be protected from the things that would come into our life, the needs that will keep life going, the dangers to which we are exposed, the evil that will so easily trip us up. What a wonderful thing it is to be part of a relationship where somebody is saying genuinely and honestly, I love you, I care for you, I'm worried about your needs being met, and I will invest my life in seeing they are met. I'm concerned about the dangers to which you might be exposed, and I will do all that I can to protect you, even with my own life. And I'm concerned that evil can encroach in your life. And I promise you, I will be on the lookout for you. I will love you. I will care for you. I will succor you. I will pray for you. I'll stand with you. Relationships. Relationships are about protection. Relationships are about inspection. It stands to reason that if we are going to be concerned about the encroachment of evil, the encroachment of danger, then we need to have careful insight into the person that we love and are concerned about. 
So great is our concern in terms of inspecting what is going on in their lives, inspecting what the circumstances of their life are, that we will be willing to take the risk of bringing the third thing, which is loving correction. Correction that is designed to build up. Correction that is designed to bring improvement. Correction that is designed to bring each other to maturity. What a wonderful thing it is. To have been loved by somebody enough for them to lay down their lives for you, to make themselves expendable for you, to be willing to risk being misunderstood by inspecting what is going on in your life and be willing to bring correction where it is necessary. Can you think of anything more glorious than to be part of a relationship where you enjoy that and where you are providing that for somebody else? We're made for relationships. Because sometimes the inspection that is going on and the correction that is going on can be misunderstood. One of my associates on this team here, I won't give you his name, but he was preaching at Elbrook one day and his loving wife was sitting in the congregation. And while he was trying to expound a particularly difficult piece of scripture and get into careful theological exposition and application, his loving wife was sitting in the congregation rubbing her nose and pointing at him. And so I thought, oh dear, I've got something on my nose. So he rubbed his nose. And she shook her head and rubbed the other side. And so he thought, oh, I rubbed the wrong side. So he rubbed the other side. She shook her head, so he thought, oh, it must be underneath. So he rubbed underneath, and he's having a great time rubbing, rubbing his nose. To, he doesn't have much of a nose left. And it went on all through the sermon. And it's very, very distracting when you're trying to preach, and somebody is telling you something about what's happening to your nose. At the end, he went up to her, and he said, what were you trying to tell me? She said, I was trying to tell you that you were rubbing your nose all the time. <laughs> well, I thought I'd just throw that in for something in this talk you'd remember. <laughs> Inspection. Correction. Protection. These are the things that we lovingly provide for each other. Obviously, they can go wrong. Obviously, f people can fail to provide the protection. Obviously, people, instead of protecting people from danger, can introduce them to danger. And sadly, in some relationships, instead of protecting each other from evil, sometimes we can actually lead each other into evil. Sometimes our actions are so deficient that our reactions become destructive. And can you think of anything more sad than to think of a young couple who have a wonderful wedding day and they make their great and glorious vows to each other. They make these wonderful promises and everything is beautiful and everything is just absolutely gorgeous and you know. You know that they fully intended to keep those vows when they started out, but five years later they're at each other's throats. Five years later there had been an accumulation of wrong actions. Five years later, there has been accumulation of wrong reactions. Five years later, there has been the generation of wrong attitudes. And now, instead of mutually supporting each other, they seem to be bent on mutual destruction. You think of anything more sad than broken relationships? You think of anything more sad than two young men who were friends in college and they graduate together 
and they go into business together and they're very sharp and they're, and they're very able and they've got tremendous ideas and they've got the world of business in front of them and then they begin to distrust each other. One begins to lie, one begins to cheat and in the end, not only does their friendship go, but their business goes and they're hauled into court and they finish up bankrupt. I'm talking of things whereof I know, and you know I know. And the tragedy of our culture is this, that very, very often those relationships that are designed to encourage, that are designed to upbuild, that are designed to be the means whereby we mature and grow, become in actual fact the very means whereby we destroy each other and our personalities deteriorate into something that is utterly utterly disappointing and even disgusting. If we're going to evaluate relationships realistically, we've got to look at what they're supposed to be. We've got to look at what goes wrong. And we've got to look at the results, the difference between a relationship that is being what it ought to be and the benefits that are derived therefrom and the difference with a relationship where things are not what they ought to be and where things are becoming destructive. Now, I think it would be appropriate for us just to ask ourselves an honest question here. Am I part of relationships that are fundamentally upbuilding, encouraging, and maturing? Am I involved in relationships that are the opposite? Because we're wired up for relationships. And we cannot think realistically about living wisely and well if we're not living wisely and well in the area of relationships. We need to evaluate relationships realistically. Number two, we need to accept responsibility individually. We need to accept responsibility individually. Now, what does that mean? Rather interesting to notice that when Joseph has his brothers down there in front of him, and they are, as they think, exposed, and they recognize that he is absolutely in control, and there's not a thing they can do about it. It's rather interesting to notice that at this moment, Judah stands up. Judah stands up to be counted. And he comes up with a very fascinating monologue in which he speaks very powerfully, very passionately to Joseph. What he does, in effect, is take ownership of the situation. Now, he does this by avoiding three common tactics. Tactic number one, when we have broken relationships that are sadly in need of repair, sometimes we engage in the tactic of generalization. The tactic of generalization goes something like this. Judah looks at his brothers and said, well, it wasn't my idea, it was your idea. And the other guy said, it wasn't my idea, it was your idea. And they, they begin to bounce the thing around among themselves. And in the end, they decide they're all involved. And because everybody's involved, it's nobody's fault. And that's just too bad. And that's how things are. The tactic of generalization is all too common in our culture at the present time. When we have broken relationships, very, very often people are simply saying, that's how it is. That's how it works. That's how it happens. That's what relationships are like. Nothing you can do about it. Suck it up. Hang in there. Do your best. Or look out for yourself. 
Judah teaches us that that is not the way to deal with it. For remember, deep-rooted problems rarely yield to superficial solutions. And what could be more superficial than simply to generalize and say, because everybody is misbehaving, misbehavior is all right. Uh, The second tactic that he avoided was the tactic of evasion. This is an all too common one. When there are broken relationships, we simply say, I will evade any responsibility that I have in this situation, and I'll simply look out for me. And I don't care what happens to anybody else, just so long as I come out ahead in this broken situation. Joseph says to his brothers, I don't need to keep all of you here. I let all of you go except the boy in whose sack the silver cup was found. Immediately, immediately, there probably was a thought in some of the the minds of those men, and they thought to themselves, wow, if we could just offer Benjamin here, we're in the clear. If we can just leave Benjamin here, we're out of here. We don't need to deal with this issue at all. We can just split. We can head for the exit. You say, well, that's a bit too much imagination thinking that. Why? They'd already done it once. They had already, to serve their best interest, sacrificed Joseph. Why wouldn't they, to serve their best interest, sacrifice Benjamin? In fact, knowing human nature the way we do, would it surprise any of us if in a certain situation where there's a relationship that has got deep-rooted problems, we want to simply evade the issue of dealing with the deep-rooted problems and we simply sacrifice somebody else so that our only concern is that we might get away clean. Uh, Judah avoids that one. He says, in effect, we've got to deal with this thing, and we've got to deal with it realistically, which leads to the third tactic that people sometimes use, and that is the tactic of rationalization. We rationalize the situation. Judah says something really quite interesting. He says, in the midst of this situation, God has uncovered our guilt. Did you notice that? God has uncovered our guilt. Now, think of that for a minute. In actual fact, the issue at hand was the silver in their sacks and the cup in Benjamin's sack. They had not put the silver in the sack. They had not put the cup in Benjamin's sack. They were innocent of these things. They knew they were innocent of these things. Why in the world does Judas say, God has uncovered our guilt? And the answer is, he wasn't referring to that. He was referring to that thing that always came to the surface when he and his brothers were under pressure. You know what it was? That unresolved guilt of what they had done to Joseph years and years before. And if they weren't prepared to deal with that, there was no way in which they were going to be able to handle this resolution properly. It brings in two issues. It brings in the issue of guilt, and it brings in the issue of God. And it may be a surprise to some of us to recognize that when we have broken relationships, we're not going to adequately deal with those broken relationships unless we factor in guilt and God. Why is that? The reason is simply this. If in a broken relationship I have behaved in such a way that I've contributed to the breakdown of that relationship, I have done something to a person who is not just a person, I have done something to a person who is a part of divine creation 
who is of infinite worth in the eyes of God. Therefore, it isn't just a relational thing between human beings. It is a relationship between man and God. I need to recognize that if there is a contribution on my part to the breakdown of relationship, that contribution has a name. It is called sin. And I need to be prepared to admit guilt. And I need to be prepared to talk about sin. And I need to be able to take guilt and sin to the only place where guilt and sin can be dealt with. And that is God. And Judah, instead of simply rationalizing the situation and saying, well, we're all like this, you know. Well, it's our circumstances. Well, our father was no great shakes either. Well, if you look at our grandfather, he wasn't the greatest character either. In fact, there's something in my genetic makeup that gives me a proclivity to this kind of behavior. And therefore, I guess uh, even God knows that. And therefore, there's nothing I need to do it. He doesn't say any of that. He says, God has uncovered my guilt. And if I'm going to deal realistically with a relationship that has gone sour, I need to accept this. To the extent that I have contributed to the breakdown of that relationship, I am guilty before God as well as responsible to that person. And I need to resolve the issue with God, and I need to resolve the issue with that person. Now, in all fairness, don't misunderstand this. I am not responsible for what the other person did. I am not responsible for the actions that that person perpetrated upon me. No amount of work on my part is going to undo what they did. No amount of breast beating on my part is going to eradicate what they have done. I am not responsible for what they did. I am responsible only for what I did. And I need to accept individual responsibility for that. For if there's going to be a repairing of relationships... It has something to do with evaluating relationships realistically and facing up to responsibility individually and avoiding evasion, avoiding rationalization, and avoiding generalization. It leads to the third thing. The third thing that I need to be prepared to do is to approach this situation in such a way that I am prepared to engage in repentance genuinely. Genuine repentance. Now, we need to be careful at this point. There is such a thing as genuine repentance and pseudo-repentance. We talk about crocodile's tears. Let me tell you about the crocodile tears that have nothing to do with a genuine heartfelt repentance. Some people, when they have a broken relationship, uh, will come with deep remorse and with bitter, bitter tears. But if you explore the remorse and if you explore the tears, sometimes you'll discover that they are sorry they got caught. That's about it. Boy, I'm, I'm just sorry I got caught. Some people will go a step further than that. They will cry buckets full of tears because of the situation they're in, not out of genuine remorse, but out of the fact that they are so sorry that they're having to put up with the consequences of their own actions. I hate, I hate this. I hate it now. Look where I am. I'm on my own. I hate it that my, my wife is gone. I hate it the, the kids are no longer with me. I hate it. I've lost all that money. 
there's no, uh, there's no acknowledgement of any action there that requires repentance. There's just, I'm sorry I got caught, and I'm sorry it hurts. There's another kind of pseudo-repentance, which goes something like this. It, it is quite possible that I may have made a mistake here. But we, we all, of course, make mistakes. And it is quite possible that if I have made a mistake, and granted many of us do make mistakes because, of course, none of us is perfect. It is quite possible that somebody may have been hurt. And I want to say this publicly. If it can be shown that I did make a mistake, and if as a result of the mistake that I may have made, somebody has been hurt, I am deeply, profoundly sorry, and I apologize. That is the kind of political repentance that we hear uh, not infrequently nowadays, and should never be confused with repentance. This is what repentance sounds like. I did it. I was wrong. I deeply regret it. And I won't repeat it. I did it. I was wrong. I deeply regret it, and I won't repeat it. For repentance has to do with a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It is not being sorry you got caught, and it is not being sorry it hurts, and it is not saying that if anybody got hurt by some mistake that I may possibly have made, it is simply admitting I did it, what I did was wrong, I deeply regret doing what I did, and I promise you God helping me, there'll be no repetition of the behavior. We're made for relationships. We're wired up to relate. But there's no way that we can think that we're living productively, wisely, and well if our relationships are in disarray. What then do we need to do? We need to evaluate our relationships realistically We need to accept responsibility individually. We need to be willing for repentance genuinely. And fourthly, we need to be prepared to engage in restitution realistically. Restitution. We don't hear much about restitution. Uh, Chuck Colson and uh, Prison Fellowship have introduced this concept into many state capitals. They've talked to many of the politicians about this. Many of the politicians who are worried about uh, crime, worried about the cost of incarceration, worried about the cost of building new prisons, etc., etc. And he has been suggesting something very simple and very basic, that putting a lot of people in prison doesn't solve a thing. They're putting them realistically to work, putting responsibility upon them, giving them opportunity, helping them generate something of worth, listen, and then taking that of worth which they generate and giving it back to the people whom they damaged, that is going to achieve much more in the end. It's called restitution. What does it have to do with repentance in a broken relationship? What it has to do is simply this that I not only say I did it, I was wrong, I deeply regret it, I won't repeat it, but I go a step further and I say this, and to the extent that I am able to do it, I will restore unto you that of which you were robbed. To the extent I am able to do it, I will undo the damage for which I am responsible. To the extent that I am able to do it, 
I will invest something positive into your life given the fact that I have done untold damage to you. Restitution. Now, there's a verse that I want to conclude with. And it brings this whole thing down into sharp focus. It's a wonderful verse from the epistle to the Romans. And this is what he says. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Notice very carefully, it doesn't say, live at peace with all men, period. It's much more realistic than that. It says, if it is possible. And it says, as much as it depends on you, then it says, live at peace with all men. For the realism of the thing is this, that you may, with the best will in the world, grieve deeply the broken relationships that are part of your life. And you may say to yourself, it is such a heart-sick side of my life. I would do absolutely anything to resolve this issue. And you have tried, and you have tried, and you have tried, and you've tried, and it almost seems that you're hitting a brick wall, and sometimes it's even worse, the brick wall comes down crashing on top of you. Be encouraged. Scripture does not say that you are responsible to make sure that every relationship is right. Scripture does say that you are responsible to make sure that every relationship, as far as you are concerned, is what it ought to be. You're responsible for you. You're not responsible for them. Now, in actual fact, the extent to which I fulfill my responsibility in a relationship well will, to a very real extent, determine how well, very often, the other person will respond. But there's no guarantee. But one thing we can be assured of is this, that if we are simply glibly ignoring the fact that we are in bad relationships, we're simply shrugging our shoulders, generalizing, evading, rationalizing, refusing to accept individual responsibility, unwilling to identify guilt, unready to come to a point of confession and forgiveness before the Lord, and a willingness to reach out in restitution. To the extent that we're not prepared to do those things, we're at fault. And we need to take seriously this whole business of repairing relationships. I think I've talked enough. I think we need to pray. Let's pray together. Father, some of us need to have a brief word with you about some situations in which we have to admit profound guilt and we have to come to terms with the fact that we have never really confessed to you that which was wrong about our relationships and sought your forgiveness and in the quietness of our hearts we'd like to do that now and ask that for the sake of the Lord Jesus who died on the cross that sins might be forgiven we ask that our sins of commission and omission in our relationships that we tell you about might be specifically forgiven. And some of us, Lord, would, would have to bring before you the pain of broken relationships and ask you, is there anything that we should have done that we haven't done? 
Is there anything we've done that we should try to undo? Is there anything further that we should undertake? And we ask for your wisdom and we ask for your grace. Because we have a genuine desire to see things as much as possible put right. And then, Lord, there's some of us would, would have to say that there are relationships that we would love to be able to put right, but the people are no longer with us. This causes us great pain. But we can commit to you our pain and our concern and ask for your grace and your healing. And finally, Lord, there are some of us who would have to say that perhaps our relationships have never gone right because we've never been right with you. That we've not been interested in living according to your principles and accordingly we've never sought your power. And as a result, we find ourselves in situations that are far from what they ought to be. It causes us pain and it causes you distress. And we need to humbly confess our waywardness and our sinfulness. We need to come repentantly to you and ask that you would forgive us and strengthen us to live in newness of life. Lord Jesus, hear our prayers and let our cries ascend unto you in your precious name. Amen.